0: Welcome to Newsflash. Today is Friday, 11 May 2018. In your Singapore news, the future Jurong Region Line or JRL will use specially designed carriages which are smaller in size than those found on other MRT lines to give the trains more manoeuvrability on the tracks. This is because the 24km 24 station JRL is built above ground, and its alignment has been designed to navigate the existing developments in built-up areas," the LTA or Land Transport Authority said. The smaller train cars would allow the trains to navigate tighter curves in areas constrained by existing developments, it said in response to queries. The JRL, which will serve residents in Chuachukang, Bunle, and the future Tenga estate, along with new developments like the Jurong Innovation District and Jurong Lake District, will open in three phases, starting from 2026. It is the island's seventh MRT line. JRL trains will have three cars, each with a length of 18.6 metres and width of 2.75 metres, the LTA said. In comparison, train cars for existing MRT lines, such as the Circle Line, are 23.6 metres, 3.2 by 3.2 meters. In terms of capacity, a JRL train car can carry between 150 and 200 commuters, while a regular MRT car can carry between 200 and 300. JRL trains, however, will have the flexibility to have a fourth car coupled to boost the carrying capacity. A LTA spokesman added that a light rail and Light Rail Transit, or LRT, system would have been unsuitable, as it is more adapted to straight line and alignments, such as in airports. The LRT system is less effective in coping with sharp turns and undulating terrain in built-up areas, the LTA added. While newer MRT lines, such as the Circle Line, Downtown Line and Thompson East Coast Line, are all be- being built underground, the JRL bucks the trend by being constructed above ground. The LTA explained that an above ground line can be built at a lower cost within a shorter period of time. <laughs> the traffic police will be piloting new cameras to cut ca- to target illegal u turns and other traffic offenses at the junction of Thompson Road and Newton Road. The accident black spot was chosen for its high traffic volume and frequent reports of traffic violations, Traffic Police Commander Sam T said yesterday. The LTA's Black Spot program also flagged it as a location with a high incidence of traffic accidents. Two cameras utilizing new 3D laser technology will be deployed in the trial from next month, one in front of the United Square Mall and the other on the opposite side. As well as illegal U-turns, the cameras will also target vehicles turning in non-turning lanes and vehicles stopping in yellow boxes and causing obstruction. They will be able to record the time of the violations, the vehicle's number plates, and the lanes in which the offences were committed. Multiple offences can also be recorded simultaneously. Commander T said, These are violations that can potentially cause accidents, and we have seen such accidents happening at major junctions. We want to use technology to help remind and deter motorists from committing such violations. Mr Eddie Motsin, a security guard at SC Global, who has a full view of the junction from his station, said it is often congested, with motorists stopping suddenly to get to a turning lane. He said there are as many as three accidents there a month. Commander T assured the public that no action will be taken against traffic violations captured by the cameras during the three-month trial. Moreover, there will be signs reminding drivers when the cameras are deployed. Illegal U-turns and causing obstruction at the yellow box junctions are offences with composition fines of $70 each, while failing to form up correctly. correctly when turning left carries a $130 fine and four demerit points. Commander T added that the cameras will be dismantled afterwards to assess the data collected. There are no immediate plans to deploy them elsewhere. In accordance with Traffic Police Protocol, their deployment follows a risk-based approach, not unlike speed cameras, which are installed in areas where speeding incidents have occurred. Often, officers are dispatched to monitor key junctions, and the traffic police hopes this technology can cut manpower costs. Meanwhile, following the completion of an average speed camera, or ASC, trial on the now-closed Changi Coast Road, the police have installed 12 cameras along the 4 kilometres. Tanamera Coast Road, which is prone to speeding. The traffic police said the Changi trial was successful, and the ASCs worked in the way they hoped. The ASCs are currently operational, but summons for speeding offences captured by them will only be issued by the end of the year. After pleading guilty to cheating offences in January 2013, a Malaysian man jumped bail and illegally left Singapore via speedboat about two months later. Tay chi Boon was finally caught in Kuala Lumpur on August 4 last year and sent back to Singapore three days later. Tay, now 29, was jailed for 22 months yesterday after pleading guilty last month to his offences for the second time. He admitted... To three counts towns of cheating involving $16,750 and one charge of leaving Singapore from an unauthorised place of embarkation and departure. The court heard that Tay and three others, Li Hao Yi, Gan Yi Sing, and Li Hao Ren, were involved in a lucky draw scam in Singapore and Johor Bahru. From January 2012, Tay worked for a JB-based organisation The Ted runners who told their victims that they stood a chance to win a car if they took part in a lucky draw. However, this prize did not exist, said Deputy Public Prosecutor Toh Chiu-Chi. As part of the scam, Tay was tasked to collect a stack of fictitious lucky draw vouchers from the organisation, station himself in public in JB, and hand them out to passers-by. DPP Toh said, The accused would ask the victim to open the voucher, convince the victim that the victim had won a lucky draw or might win a lucky draw, and ask the victim to follow the accused bank to the organisation's premises, where other runners would continue to deceive the victim into believing that the prize might be a car. The victim was then told to pay a sum of money to supposedly secure the vehicle. The DPP said, if the victim had to return to Singapore to obtain the money, the accused would accompany the victim back to Singapore. He also said that the organisation had drivers who would transport the victim to Singapore. The victim would then be driven back to JB to hand the money over to the organisation. On separate occasions in May 2012, Tay and his accomplices managed to dupe two victims into returning to Singapore to withdraw a total of $16,750, which the organisation later received. For each victim that he managed to lure into taking part in the so-called lucky draw, Tay earned 50 ringgits. Tay Gan and Lee Hao Yi were caught in Singapore on June 18, 2012, after the son of a potential third victim alerted the police. Tay was charged in court two days later before pleading guilty to his offences on January 15, 2013. While out on bail, sometime between March 15 and April 12 that year, he had a discussion with Li Hao Yi and Gan about absconding. The trio later went to Changi village, boarded a speedboat and fled to Malaysia. Gan, who was caught earlier, has been dealt with in court and was sentenced to 27 months jail. Li Hao Yi and Li Hao Ren are still at large. Eight months have passed since his father was hit by a car, and the elderly man is still in a vegetative state. Sports trainer Ung Si Chai said yesterday that Mr Ung Yu Ai, 72, who used to run marathons, is now totally dependent on his caregivers. The younger Mr Ung, 50, said, It's sad to see my father like this. The doctor said that he cannot get better anymore. He used to be very active and independent. Now he has to be turned every two hours, and fed through a nasal tube every three hours. He is now living with my aunt. My younger brother and I visit him every day. The three of us and the maid take care of him together. Mr Ng Yui was riding his motorcycle along Tampines Expressway towards Penn Island Expressway at around one thirty pm on September 3rd last year when the car hit him. Yesterday, the driver, Brian Lee Cheng, 30, was jailed for two weeks and disqualified from driving all classes of vehicles for five years after pleading guilty to causing grievous hurt by negligent driving. Lee was driving along the expressway when he turned his head to check its blind spot before filtering into another lane. He failed to ensure that the coast was clear. The front portion of his vehicle hit the rear of Mr. Ng-Yu I's motorcycle, sending it crashing to the road. An ambulance rushed the elderly man to Kutek Pot Hospital, where he underwent brain surgery the same day. A medical report stated that Mr. Ng suffered life-threatening injuries, including bleeding bleeding under the membrane surface of the brain and facial fracture. Deputy Public Prosecutor Deborah Tang told District Judge Shaifuddin Saruwan. The victim was discharged from the hospital December 11, 2017, as his condition had stabilised and doctors could do nothing further for him. He remains in a persistent vegetative state today. Lee did not sustain any injuries, the court heard. His lawyer, Mr Wilson Tan, pleaded for leniency and told the court that his client was not speeding when the accident took place. Mr Aung Si Chai said that he has forgiven Lee. He said, I think he must be feeling very guilty for causing this accident. For causing grievous hurt by negligent driving, Lee could have been jailed for up to two years and fined up to $5,000. After deceiving a customer into believing that he was the owner of a second-hand Audi S5, used car dealer Huat Bi kept the title to the car for himself and used it to obtain a loan of over $46,000. When he failed to repay the loan, the car was repossessed from the new owner, who ended up paying a hefty sum to get his car back. Tio, 42, was yesterday sentenced to 11 months jail for one count of cheating. Although the sole proprietor of US car dealer Vest Cars Motoring had agreed to sell the Audi S5 to Mr. Chua, Chi Koon, for $57,000, he had in fact planned to retain ownership of the car for himself and use it as security for a loan. Deputy Public Prosecutor Toh Chiu-Chi said that in March last year, Mr Chua saw an advertisement by the dealership offering the car for sale. After signing an agreement with Mr Teo, Mr Chua paid $24,061.92 in cash and traded in his old Audi A4 car, which was valued at $35,000 to the company, said DPP Toh. The sum included an additional $2,000. And $61.92 for motor insurance. Tio then sent Mr. Chua's old car to be scrapped and obtained $35,000 in the process. Assuring the victim that the ownership of the title to the Audi S5 had been transferred to him, Tio handed the keys over to the unsuspect- unsuspecting Mr. Chua. But in fact, Tio had retained the title to the car and used the vehicle as security to obtain a $46,312.50 loan from leasing service Fuyo Leasing Private Limited," said D.P.P. Tio. He then used the loan for his car business. However, he failed to make repayments on the loan, prompting Fuyo Leasing to exercise their legal rights to repossess the vehicle, which at that time was in the possession of Mr. Chua. As a result... The car was towed away in September last year. Mr Chua lodged a police report, but had to pay $35,797.76 to the company to regain possession of the same car he had bought less than six months earlier. District Judge Marvin Bay noted that while Teo has since made a partial restitution of $11,312.50 to Fuyo Leasing, this did not address the son Mr Chua had already paid to the leasing service. Defence counsel said that Tio had attempted to make restitution, but had fallen short due to his limited financial means. In addition to supporting his wife and seven-year-old child, Tio spent about $1,000 a month on his mother, who was diagnosed with cancer, the court heard. Tio will begin serving his sentence with immediate effect. For cheating and dishonestly inducing a delivery of property, he could have been jailed for up to 10 years and fined. Your news on the Malaysian election 2018. Tun Dr. Mahathir Mohamad was sworn in as Malaysia's seventh prime minister yesterday night, hours after former premier Najib Razak said that he accepted the will of the people that handed Barisan National, or BN, a shock defeat which ended the AMNO led pact's six decades in power. Followed a seri- following a series of press conferences in which he asserted that his Pakatan Harappan, or PH Coalition, clearly won Wednesday's votes vote and agreed to back him as Prime Minister. Dr Mahathir was granted an audience with the King, Sultan Muhammad V, at 5pm. But it would be five hours before he was officially declared Prime Minister, as he had to wait while leaders of the four parties in his coalition were interviewed by the King. The latter then invited the 92-year-old to form the next government and add to his 22 years of experience leading the country. PH and its ally, party Warizan Sabah, won 121 seats in the 222-seat federal parliament in the keenly contested May 9 general election, while BN secured 79 seats and results that were ready by the wee hours of Thursday morning. The Palace received the official results from the EC at two forty five p m yesterday. However, the lag raised questions among the public and on social media prompting the Comptroller of the Royal Household, one Ahmad Dalan Abdul Aziz to say in a statement last night, Istana Nagara strongly refutes any allegation that his Majesty delayed the appointment of Tun Dr Mahathir as Prime Minister. ''His Majesty looks forward to working with twin Dr Mahathir and his administration for the betterment of our nation and all its people,'' the statement added. Confusion had erupted after messages went viral about a a 9.30am swearing-in, which the palace had to deny. Later, it was expected that Dr Mahathir, now the world's oldest head of government, would be sworn in during his 5pm audience which instead ended up being a test of his control of Parliament. Speaking to reporters at a press conference after the ceremony, Dr Mahathir said the delay was unavoidable because of certain official processes which they had to go through. I would like to thank the people who supported us, he said. He also gave the assurance that his administration would be business-friendly. Malaysia has been a trading nation. You don't quarrel with your markets, he said having defeated the long-ruling VN, which he headed until 2003, and then left in 2016 after calling for Datuk Seri Najib's ouster over the scandal at state-owned fund 1MDB. Dr Mahathir had earlier asked to be sworn in as soon as possible after his PH crossed the threshold of a simple majority of 112 seats by early Thursday morning. Prime Minister of Singapore, Lee Hsien Loong, Posted a congratulatory message on Facebook shortly after, Dr Mahathir took his oath of office, saying he wished him and his team every success, and hoped to catch up with him in person soon. Malaysia is a vital partner of Singapore, and our peoples share strong and deep bonds. I look forward to working with Tun Mahathir and the new government to enhance our cooperation. We can do much more together, he said. Mr Najib told reporters at the UMNO headquarters yesterday, I accept the verdict of the people, and BN is committed to respecting the principles of parliamentary democracy, but he stopped short of conceding defeat. After Dr Mahathir was sworn in, Mr Najib said on Twitter that he had sent his congratulations to his successor. I am prepared to help in a smooth transition of power, he added. Sabah Chief Minister Tan Sri Musa Aman has announced his new lineup of cabinet ministers for the state after being sworn into office yesterday as well. Musa said 10 people, Datuk Seri Masidi Manjun, Datuk Hajiji Noor, Sabah Stars, Datuk Dr Jeffrey Kitingan, Datuk Bobby Swan, Datuk Elron Angin, Datuk Bukia Ismail, Datuk Jahid Jahim, Datuk Masyong Bana, Datuk Musba Jamli and Datuk Anita Baranting have been selected for various ministerial posts. Masidi, Hajiji and Jeffrey will be the Deputy Chief Ministers and serve as Tourism, Culture and Environment, Infrastructure Development and Agriculture Ministers, respectively. Bobby is the new Special Task Minister, while Elron is the Rural Development Minister, Bolkia the Industrial Development Minister. Jahid, the local government and housing, and Masyong is the youth and sports minister. Musba will be in charge of information technology, while the state's sole female minister, Anita, will be tasked with women, family, and community development. Musa said, "I will announce the assistant ministers and six nominated assemblymen, among other things, later on." He thanked the people for choosing their candidates, as well as Sabah Star for joining them to form the state government. Musa also pledged to serve the Rakyat and work with the federal government. He said, I am sure we will be able to work together for the people. Asked about Jeffrey's statement in the new state government, will disband Amno in Sabah to make way for a new localized party, Musa said, It has not been decided. He said, There might be change in the party, but it has not been decided. He added that they will think of what is good for the rakyat before making any decision. In other Asia news, India's Supreme Court has faulted the country's archaeological conservation body for failing to protect the Taj Mahal from discoloration, dirty feet and green slime emitted by millions of mosquito-like insects. Since 2015, the body, The Archaeological Survey of India has overseen a restoration project at the Taj Mahal, with workers scaling scaffolding to remove grime from the 17th-century tomb, which was built by the Muslim Emperor Shah Jahan for his favourite wife, Mumtaz Mahal. But last week, the Supreme Court called in officials of the organisation to respond to criticism that work was taking too long. Over the years... As millions of tourists have flocked to the Taj Mahal in northern India, the monument's appearance has deteriorated, its pearly white facade growing dull, and the dirt from barefoot visitors blackening the grounds. During Wednesday's hearing, a lawyer for the Archaeological Survey of India, A.D. N Rao, said that algae was a big source of the discoloration, despite a report from the survey attributing the problem to millions of insects that excrete a green substance on the Taj Mahal's walls during mating flights. Experts have previously said the algae in the nearby polluted Yamuna River has led to an increase in the number of insects. Justice Madan Loka said, How has the algae algae, reached the top parts of the Taj Mahal? The lawyer representing the Archaeological Survey of India said, It flew there. The court responded, according to news reports. Can LG fly? Later, when asked by the court why the ASI does not provide clean socks to tourists to curb the dirt problem, the lawyer replied, We provide socks only to the VIPs. The judge slammed it, saying that the problem is that the ASI is not willing to accept that there is even a problem. Environmental lawyer MC Mehta who was present at the hearing and confirmed the exchanges, said he filed a case with the Supreme Court in 1984 to expedite the cleanup process. But for the past 34 years, little has been done to restore the monuments, he said. Mr Mehta said, My question is, what are you doing about it? You are the custodian of monuments. You are an expert professional body. It is your job and you have to do it. Why are you so slow in taking action? Billionaire Li Ka-sing has formally stepped down yesterday as head of a business empire he built during a span of nearly seven decades, pacing the rise of Hong Kong from a UK-run enclave to to today's bastion of capitalism. The 89-year-old Tycoon, who announced his retirement plans in March, is scheduled to step down as chairman of C.K. Hutchison Holdings Limited and C.K. Asset Holdings Limited, at the company's annual general meetings yesterday. His eldest son, 53-year-old Victor Lee, will take over. For decades, Lee was the richest man in Hong Kong, and often Asia. His career began in 1950 as plastic flowers manufacturer, which he then transformed into a global conglomerate spanning real estate, infrastructure, retail, ports and telecommunications. The outgoing mogul, who is often referred to as Superman in Hong Kong for his business acumen, was born on July 29, 1928, in Chaozhou, a city in southern China's Guangdong province. His father was a school principal, but the younger Li's formal education stopped at high school as invading Japanese troops reached reached Guangdong. Fleeing war-torn China for Hong Kong in 1940, Li found factory work while also caring for his ailing father, who soon died from tuberculosis. Technically, Lee won't step aside entirely. When he announced his retirement in March, the multi billionaire said he intended to keep offering his services as a senior advisor for the princely sum of 5,000 Hong Kong dollars a year. North Korea's Air Corio plans to launch charter flights between Pyongyang and Chengdu in southwest China, two airline officials told Reuters amid a major improvement in diplomatic relations between the neighbours. The flight to Chengdu, one of the biggest cities in China's vast western region, could start as early as next month, if approved by China's aviation regulator, the officials told Reuters on condition of anonymity. One of the officials, who said an application to the regulator had not been yet submitted, said, At the moment, this is still a plan. Whether it can actually take off will be impacted by the policy environment going forward. Now perhaps it's Chengdu. Afterwards could be Dalian, Guangzhou. If there's a market, we'll fly. If not, we won't. He noted Chinese travel agencies were involved with marketing the flights to potential customers. China has traditionally been politically isolated, North Korea's closest ally. But ties have been frayed by Pyongyang's nuclear weapons program and Beijing's backing of tough UN sanctions in response. Relations have, however, improved of late. Chinese President Xi Jinping and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un have held two meetings in China since March as North Korea prepares for a planned summit meeting with US President Donald Trump. Air Korea already offers regular flights from Pyongyang to the northeast cities of Beijing and Shenyang and the eastern port city of Shanghai. Revenues from Chinese tourists would provide a welcome boost to North Korea's closed economy. Tourists from China account for about four-fifths of foreign visitors to North Korea, says South Korean Think Tank, the Korean Maritime Institute, which estimates tourism generates revenue of about 44 million U.S. dollars each year for the country. Air China Limited indefinitely suspended flights from Beijing to Pyongyang in November, citing a lack of demand those were the only flights by a Chinese carrier to North Korea. (laughs) Australia is refocusing its foreign aid programmes in a move to win hearts and minds in the island nations of the Pacific, as an increasingly assertive China flexes its muscles in the region. The country has pledged more than 1.3 billion Australian dollars, its largest ever aid commitments to the Pacific. To fund projects including an undersea communications cable to Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. The government said the reorientation of its eight priorities, reviewed in a budget on Tuesday, reflected the fundamental importance to Australia of the stability and economic progress of Pacific Island countries. Canberra and other regional capitals have become increasingly alarmed at China's push into the Pacific which could potentially upset the strategic balance in the region. Australia's Lowy Institute estimates China provided 1.78 billion US dollars in aid, including concessional loans to Pacific nations between 2006 to 2016. And reports last month, which were denied, said Beijing wanted to establish a permanent military base in Vanuatu. The extra two hundred million Australian dollars in aid, which will also go towards a new high commission in Tuvalu, means the Pacific now represents some thirty percent of Canberra's total aid budget, which stood still at four point two billion Australian dollars. Aid agencies were quick to criticise the freeze in overall aid funding at just zero point two three percent of national income, despite a significant boost to government revenues from a pickup in commodity prices and employment growth. Mark Purchell, Chief Executive of the Australian Council for International Development, said This budget was an important opportunity to show leadership and use some of the unexpected revenue to repair past damage to aid. In contrast, neighbour New Zealand this week announced a significant rise to foreign aid, delivering six hundred and sixty eight million Australian dollars in extra funding over the next four years, largely directed at the Pacific. China's biggest ride sharing company apologized yesterday over the killing of a passenger, apparently by her driver, and said it had to win back the trust of users after a tragedy that has sparked a widespread debate on Chinese social media. The young woman passenger was killed in Zhengzhou city last week, turning a spotlight on passenger safety as ride sharing giant DD Chuxing, which is valued at 50 billion US dollars looked to make a big push outside China's borders. Didi was deeply saddened by and sorry by about the tragedy, the company said in a statement, adding that it had apologised to the family of the 21-year-old flight attendant killed en route from the city's airport hotel to downtown. Didi said in a statement to Reuters, We need to step up to win the trust of our users. Our responsibilities in this case are undeniable. The case poses a challenge for Didi, the dominant player in China's ride-hailing markets, as it takes on rivals such as Uber Technologies, Incorporated overseas. Didi's backers include Apple Inc. and Japan's SoftBank Group Corporation. Didi is the world's largest ride-hailing firm by number of rides, thanks to its commanding market share in China, where it has 450 million users. It's completed more than 7.4 billion rides last year, almost double of Uber's count. Uber sold its Chinese operations to Didi in 2016 in exchange for a 17.5% stake in the Chinese firm, which also made a $1 billion US dollars investment in Uber. Didi said it was looking for a male driver named Liu Zhenhua to assist with the investigation and was offering a reward of up to 1 million yuan to anyone with information on him. Reuters could not reach Liu for comment. It also said police were looking for the person suspected to have killed the woman, and it would work closely with law enforcement authorities. Zhengzhou police in east-central Henan province did not comment directly on the killing, but urged people not to engage in disputes with drivers, and to be accompanied when taking rides at night, in a notice posted on social media. The killing has sparked in heated debate on China's active social media, fast becoming the most talked about topic on microblog platform Weibo, with many expressing safety fears. One user wrote on the platform, Diddy really needs to step up internal supervision. Who is going to ensure our safety? (laughs) Moving to world news, in the US, a subpoena that House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes, a California Republican, issued to the Justice departments last week, made a broad request for all documents about an individual who people close to the matter say is a sensitive, long-time intelligence source for the CIA and FBI. The Justice Department has refused to provide the documents. Intelligence officials say the material could jeopardize the source, a U.S. citizen who has aided the Special Counsel investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 campaign. The subpoena, which was reviewed by the Washington Post, demands all documents referring or related to the individual referenced in Chairman Nunes' twenty-fourth April 2018 classified letter to Attorney General Sessions. That is the only material the subpoena seeks. In an interview on Wednesday, Mr Nunes maintained that he was not interested in any individual. He said, we're interested in documents that should have been given to us at least last fall. That's what we're looking for, and any claim to the contrary is wrong, and they know it's wrong. Mr Noon said that justice officials have blocked access to specific documents, and that the language in the subpoena was an effort to get access to the underlying information. A Justice Department spokeswoman declined to comment. On Monday, Mr Nunes told reporters that his request did not seek information about a specific person. He said, referring to the Justice Department, I've never re- referenced an individual. They did. They did that. I didn't. Senior intelligence officials alarmed by Mr Nunes' subpoena warned White House Chief of Staff John Kelly last week that the information could being sought could not be turned over, because it could do serious damage to intelligence-sharing relationships with other countries, The Post reported on Tuesday. General Kelly and President Donald Trump sided with the Justice Department, but Mr Nunes and some of his colleagues say they may ultimately win the fight over access to the sources' files. On Tuesday, senior justice officials renewed their efforts to fend off his request. During a meeting at the White House, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. It discussed the issue with senior officials, according to people familiar with the matter. Partly as a result of those discussions, the Justice Department has invited Mr. Nunes to a classified meeting yesterday in the hopes of resolving the impasse, these people said. Mr. Nunes has said he is seeking information about abuse of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court process. Earlier this week, He said the Justice Department was citing spurious national security concerns. Congress has a right and duty to get this information, and will succeed in getting this information, regardless of whatever fantastic stories the DOJ and FBI spin to the post, Mr Noon said. He has threatened to seek a contempt vote against Attorney General Jeff Sessions over the issue. Mr Sessions, however, is recused from the matter as part of his larger recusal from Special Counsel Robert Mueller's probe and investigations involving the 2016 campaigns. The battle over access to government files about the secret source is the latest skirmish in a broader dispute between Congressional Republicans and the Justice Department concerning investigative documents. Mr Noons and Republicans on the committee have repeatedly charged that the Justice Department and FBI have misused the top-secret court process to unfairly investigate Trump supporters. Representative Mark Meadows, a North Carolina Republican and close ally of the President, has threatened to seek the impeachment of Mr Rosenstein if he doesn't turn over a secret document identifying who is under investigation in the Mueller probe and what possible crimes are being investigated. Democrats have accused Mr Nunes of running a political smokescreen to protect the president and hobble the Russian probe. Iranian forces on the Syrian health side of the Golan Heights shelled Israeli army outposts on the strategic plateau yesterday but caused no casualties, the Israeli military said. Israel retaliated for the attack, military spokesman Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus said, without elaborating. The late night incident followed a surge in tensions between Israel and Syria, where Iranian and Lebanese Hezbollah forces have been helping Damascus beat back a seven year old rebellion. Fearing that Iran and Hezbollah are setting up a Lebanese Syrian front against it, Israel has occasionally struck at their forces. Iran blamed it for an April 9 airstrike that killed seven of its military personnel in Syria and vowed revenge. Lieutenant Colonel Konrikas said that in Thursday's attack, around 20 projectiles, most likely rockets, were fired by the Kurds force, an external arm of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, at around 12.10 a.m. A few of those rockets were intercepted by Israel's Iron Dome Air Defense System, Lieutenant Colonel Konrikas told reporters. We are not aware of any casualties. The amount of damage that we currently assess is low. Asked if Israel retaliated for the salvo, he said, We have retaliated, but I have no further details about this. Expectations of a regional flare-up were stoked by US President Donald Trump's announcement on Tuesday that he was withdrawing from the Iranian nuclear deal. Hours later, an Israeli airstrike in Syria killed 15 people, including eight Iranians, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights said. Israel has neither confirmed nor denied responsibility. A large explosion in Hawaii's Kilauea volcano on Wednesday may mark the beginning of more violent explosive eruptions that could spray rocks for kilometres and dust nearby towns in volcanic ash and smog, the U.S. Geological Survey said. Kilauea, Hawaii's most active volcano, erupted last Thursday and a powerful earthquake shook the crater the next day. Lava flows from fissures on its flank have destroyed at least 36 homes, and other buildings and caused the evacuation of some 2,000 residents. The USGS warned that more violent eruptions at the crater could begin in mid May, shooting rocks weighing several tons for over one kilometre, hurling pebble sized projectiles several kilometres, and dusting areas up to 32 kilometres away with ash. Dr. Tina Neal scientists in charge of the USGS Hawaiian Volcano Observatory sit on a conference call on State's Blast, which shot projectiles from the crater. This is the first or perhaps more events like that to come. The town of Hilo, some 40 kilometres northeast of Kilaue, on Hawaii's Big Island, and the village of Pahua, 39 kilometres east, could be exposed to volcanic air pollution, or so-called VOG, and a layer of ash should explosive eruptions begin and prevailing wind direction shift, Dr. Neal said. Such steam-driven explosions could be triggered by water running into the crater's falling lava lake should it drop below the level of groundwater. Geologists cautioned that Kilaue's past explosions had been relatively small on a global scale, and while ash from the volcano posed a nuisance as an eye and respiratory irritant, it was not a serious health hazard. Dr. Donald Swanson of the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory said, We don't anticipate there being any wholesale devastation or evacuations necessary anywhere in the state of Hawaii. Hawaii County Civil Defence said all 1,900 residents of the Leilani Estates and Lanipuna Garden areas around 40 kilometres east of the crater had been evacuated. Lava oozing from two new fissures in the area had paused, but sulfur dioxide gas was still a hazard. Exposure to very high levels of the gas, which causes acid rain, can be life-threatening, according to the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. Evacuee David Nail was anxious to learn if his house had been destroyed. He was asleep on the couch when the fissure opened up 610 metres away, spewing out lava and gas. He said, It sounded like 10 or 20 jet engines. The, the man, who recently retired to the area from Orange County, California, said he had seen drone footage showing lava flowing up his driveway, causing two propane tanks to explode. He tried to reach his house on Tuesday, but he and his neighbours were blocked by a 6-metre-tall wall of lava. He said, All we could do was sit there and cry. 14 fissures have opened since Kilaue's vents started spraying fountains of lava up to 90 metres into the air last Thursday and about 42 hectares of land have been covered with lava. Kilaue has been in a state of nearly constant eruption for 35 years. It predominantly blows off basaltic lava in effusive eruptions that flow into the ocean but occasionally experiences more explosive events. A powerful magnitude 6.9 earthquake on the volcano's south flank shook the area on Friday. It was the second largest of the last century in Hawaii. More earthquakes and eruptions have been forecast, perhaps for months to come. Hawaii's Volcanoes National Park, where Kilauea is located, remains open to tourists, albeit with some restrictions. The new Google Digital Assistant converses so naturally, it may seem like a real person, The unveiling of the natural-sounding robo assistant by the tech giants this week wowed some observers, but left others fretting over the ethics of how the human-seeming software might be used. Google chief Sanda Pichai played a recording of the Google Assistant independently, calling a hair salon and a restaurant to make bookings, interacting with staff who evidently didn't realise they were dealing with artificial intelligence software rather than a real customer. Tell the Google Assistant to book a table for four at 6 p.m., it tends to the phone call in a human-sounding voice, complete with speech disfluencies such as ums and ahs. Google engineers Yaniv Leviathan and Yossi Matthias sit in a duplex blog post. This is what people often do when they are gathering their thoughts. Google Assistant's artificial intelligence enhanced with duplex technology that let it engage like a real person on the phone was a surprise, and for some unsettling star of the internet giant's annual Developers Conference this week in its hometown of Mountain View, California. The digital assistant was also programmed to understand when to respond quickly, such as after someone says hello versus pausing as a person might before answering, answering complex questions. Google pitched the enhanced assistance as a potential boon to busy people and small businesses with which websites customers can use to make appointments. Pichai told the approximately 7,000 developers at the Google I/O conference along with an online audience watching his streamed presentation on Tuesday. Our vision for our assistance is to help you get things done. Google will be testing the digital assistance improvement in the months ahead. The duplex demonstration was quickly followed by debate over whether people answering phones should be told when they are speaking to human sounding software and how the technology might be abused in the form of more convincing robocalls by marketers or political campaigns. Chris Messina, a product whose designer, w- whose resume includes Google, and bringing the idea of the hashtag to Twitter. Google Duplex is the most incredible, terrifying thing out of. Hashtag IO18 so far. Google Duplex is an important development and signals an urgent need to figure out proper governance of machines that can fool people into thinking they are human, according to K. Firth Butterfield, head of the AI and Machine Learning projects at the World Economic Forum Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. He said, this ma- These machines could call on behalf of political parties and make ever more convincing recommendations for voting. Will children be able to use these agents and receive calls from them? Digital assistance-making arrangements for people also raises the question of who is responsible for mistakes, such as a no-show or cancellation fee for an appointment set for the wrong time. At a time of heightened concerns about online privacy, there were also worries expressed about what kind of digital data assistance might collect and who gets access to it? A post credited to Lauren Weinstein in a chat forum below the Duplex blog post read, My sense is that humans in general don't mind talking to machines so long as they know they're doing so. An array of comments at Twitter contended there was an ethical breach to not letting people know they were conversing with software. Read a post by Andrea Scaffer in the BlockChat chat forum. If you've grown up watching Star Trek TNG like me, then you probably considered natural voice interactions with computers a thing of the future. Well, looks like the future is here. Nike has dismissed additional executives as its moves to address a workplace culture marred by sexual harassment and bullying, embarrassing a brand that is self-defined around equality and empowerment. The latest departures confirmed on Wednesday by a Nike spokeswoman consist of five executives, including one woman, and lift the total exits to around a dozen, including former President Trevor Edwards, who had been seen as a chief executive in waiting. Since Edwards' departure was announced in March, US media reports have chronicled myriad cases in which women were subjected to sexual harassment and often passed up for promotions in a boorish, threat-like culture. The revelations have come amid a broader rethink in US society over gender relations following the downfall of Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein and the ensuing MeToo movement that has toppled numerous figures across business, politics and entertainment. Remaining Mike Brass have said little publicly about the staffing overhaul beyond Chief Executive Mark Parker's remarks in March, emphasising the need to address some behavioural issues that clash with Nike's culture. Parker said on the March 22nd earnings conference call. I'm committed to ensure that we have an environment where every Nike employee can have a positive experience and reach their full potential. The upheaval comes as Nike has experienced sales stagnation in North America, offset in the most recent quarter by a strong performance in China and other overseas markets. CFRA research analyst Victor Aluwalia said it was too soon to know if the problems would further dent North American sales, but he predicted the company's travels could trouble customers. Nike's famous Just Do It slogan emphasises empowerment, as do sponsorships of iconic athletes such as Michael Jordan and Serena Williams. Aluwalia said, The company was viewed as progressive, and kind of millennial-friendly, so for something like this to happen with a brand that comes with that kind of a message was shocking. But Aluwalia praised the company for being proactive, in contrast to other companies that responded to workplace scandals only after problems publicly surfaced, usually in media reports. Aluwalia said, Clearly work needs to be done, and I think it will take time. Being proactive does position the company much better for the future. Since Edward's departure was announced in March, others to leave have included top executives in digital marketing, diversity and inclusion and Nike basketball. The house cleaning was spurred by a survey of frustrated female workers in Nike's Oregon headquarters who polled their peers finding widespread sexual harassment and discrimination and presenting the data to Chief Executive Parker, according to a New York Times expose. The Times article also cited women who reported problems ranging from being cursed by, cursed at by an abusive male boss to excluded from key meetings and passed up for promotions. The staff dismissals follow an initial investigation into workplace conduct launched in March, according to a person familiar with the matter. The latest group of outgoing executives includes Helen Kim, a vice president for North Korea, sorry, North America, whose departure suggested to some experts that Nike's focus was no longer strictly about addressing sexism, but had broadened to countering the problem of bullying. Gary Nami of the Workplace Bullying Institute said, The larger problem is the workplace bullying, or as we call it, abusive conduct in the workplace, because that ignores gender boundaries and it ignores race. It is just cruelty. David Yamada a professor at Suffolk University Law School added. Apparently, Nike's workplace culture is very competitive, aggressive, one that may sometimes deteriorate into bullying behaviours and sexual harassment and discrimination. Perhaps the departure signal a core shift in management philosophy and practice for the better, but it's op- obviously premature to make that determination. Some analysts worry the problems will prevent Nike from reaching a target of 50 billion U.S. dollars in annual revenues, compared with 34.4 billion U.S. dollars in 2017. Sam Poser, analyst at Susquehanna Financial Group, said, "Any time you see a large group of senior people leave very quickly for any reason, you better hope they have a very strong bench that can step in quickly." At least 41 people died after a dam burst in central Kenya, police said yesterday, as residents described muddy waters ripping through their homes in what what one survivor called hell on earth. After a severe drought, weeks of torrential rains in Kenya have led to flooding and mudslides that have left 172 dead. The private Patel Dam, used for irrigation and fish farming, burst its earthen banks on Wednesday evening in Solai, near the Rift Valley city of Nakuru, Re- Regional Police Chief Gideon Kibunja told AFP. The raging waters wiped out two villages, a local resident said, while power lines were swept away, leaving many without electricity. The search for victims was interrupted on Thursday on yesterday afternoon by heavy rains. Kibunja said We have forty-one people dead from this tragedy. It is a disaster because most people were asleep when the tragedy occurred and their houses were swept away. He added 20 of the dead were children. He said the search was still going on and that thirty six people had been hospitalized. Survivor Noji Juroj said he and his family had been having dinner when there was a loud explosion of water that washed away our home. Their home. He said, I was with my parents and my younger brother. I don't know where they are. I was carried away by the water, but I was lucky as I clung to a tree until the water subsided. It was like hell on earth, Miriam Karimi said. She could not find any of her three children, including her four-year-old son. She added, when we heard noises, we thought it was raining heavily nearby i'm so confused. I hope they are alive. A senior police official officer at the scene, speaking on condition of anonymity said emergency workers had spent the night combing through engulfed houses to retrieve bodies. He said. We found 11 of the bodies covered with mud at a coffee plantation, and these are people who may have been escaping but could not make it due to the force and speed of the water from the flooded dam. Most of them are women and children, who could not have been able to run fast, and the elderly. The dam is close to an informal settlement, housing casual labourers who work on nearby farms. The Kenyan Red Cross estimates that up to 500 families were affected by the disaster, which took place some 150 kilometres northwest of Nairobi. Interior Minister Fred Matianji describes the scene as very tragic, and foreign diplomats issued statements of sympathy. Matianji said while visiting the area, We have lost a lot of lives, and we are trying to see how we can help the survivors to go back to their normal lives in this village. Weeks of torrential rains in Kenya have led to flooding and mudslides countrywide. Government statistics released on Wednesday showed that more than 220,000 people have been displaced by flooding as heavy rains hit the country after three consecutive failed rainy seasons had left it in drought. Since March, at least 8,500 hectares of farmland have been submerged in water with an estimated 20,000 animals killed, the Red Cross said last week. The floods have also destroyed road networks in some parts of the East African country, and in some cases the military has stepped in to airlift residents from submerged houses. The Red Cross appealed last week for 5 million U.S. dollars to help those affected. The deluge has affected large parts of East Africa, destroying crops and killing farm animals after a severe drought which had sent food prices and inflation soaring and left millions in need of food aid. In Rwanda, 215 people have died because of floods and landslides since January, according to Philip Habinshuti of the Disaster Management Ministry. In Somalia, flooding has displaced tens of thousands, while torrential rains have also caused havoc in Tanzania and Uganda. And news just in, US President Donald Trump announced Yesterday, he will meet North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in Singapore on June 12, confirming speculation that had been swirling among international media for days. Mr Trump tweeted yesterday, The highly anticipated meeting between Kim Jong-un and myself will take place in Singapore on June 12. We will both try to make it a very special moment for world peace. The event will be the first meeting between a sitting U.S. president and a North Korean leader. They are expected to discuss North Korea's nuclear weapons development and testing program, which has deepened long-seated tensions between Washington and Pyongyang. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Singapore confirmed late yesterday that the Republic would host the event. MFA said in a statement, Singapore is pleased to host a meeting between President of the US, Donald J. Trump, and Democratic People's Republic of Korea State Affairs Commission Chairman Kim Jong-un on 12 June 2018. We hope this meeting will advance prospects for peace in the Korean Peninsula. Replying to Mr Trump's tweet on Friday morning, Prime Minister Lee Hsien-Lung said the summit is a significant step on the path to peace. May it lead to a successful outcome, he added. Singapore, touted for its neutrality, high degree of public order and track record in hosting high-level meetings, was among a list of venues floated for the summit, which would be the first between leaders of the US and the North. The White House confirmed today that the Republic was chosen because it could ensure the security of both leaders and provide neutrality. In recent weeks, the shortlist was whittled down to Singapore, and the Demilitarized Zone or DMZ, that divides the Korean Peninsula. But on Wednesday, Mr. Trump told reporters that the summit would not be held in the DMZ. Mr. Trump's announcement came just hours after three Americans who had been held prisoner in North Korea arrived at a U.S. military base outside Washington, having been brought back by U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo after their release by Mr. Kim. Mr. Trump, who had cautioned that if he was prepared to walk away from the summit, a progress was not being made, and that any deal would have to include North Korea's denuclearization, said on their arrival that he believed Mr Kim wanted to bring North Korea into the real world and had high hopes for their planned meeting. I think we have a very good chance of doing something very meaningful. My proudest achievement will be, this is part of it, when we denuclearize that entire peninsula. Mr Trump said, Visiting U.S. Seventh Fleet's commander, Vice Admiral Philip Sawyer, had told Singapore Media in an interview yesterday that the region and the world is cautiously optimistic and hopeful of what will come out of this. Describing the developments as historic, he made the comments when asked how recent developments involving North Korea could impact the Seventh Fleet's operations. He added, I think that our government leaders between our two countries are going to be meeting very shortly, and I look forward to what comes out of that. Experts we we spoke to weighed in on the likelihood and merits of three possible locations in the Republic. The Shangri-La Hotel, a hospitality and events consultant who did not wish to be named, said that this hotel, which hosts the annual high-level Shangri-La Security Dialogue, is the top contender. Logistically and security-wise, Shangri-La knows the drill, especially since they also host the Shangri-La Dialogue. Mr. Toby Ko, Group Managing Director of Ademco Security Group, said the hotel would have security preparations in place for the Shangri-La Dialogue taking place in early June, before the Trump-Kim summit reportedly taking place in mid-June. He added, It's probably the ideal location, so they don't have to replan and redeploy the security assets. Its location, away from the main Orchard Road belt, and within a residential area, also makes the Shangri-La Hotel an ideal venue for the summit, experts said. Marina Bay Sands. It has been flanked as a venue for the summit, given that one of President Trump's major donors, Mr Sheldon Adelson, is Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Las Vegas Sands Corp., which owns this resort. Mr koh however, does not think it is a suitable venue for the meeting. He added... It is out of the question, and that MBS is too close to the city, so getting to and from the venue will be a hassle for officials and others attending the meeting. The facility's sprawling area also makes it very challenging for the security personnel, he added. Mr Cole said, There are too many ways to access the location, and I do not think that authorities will want to close off the area. And lastly, Sentosa. The island, with its relaxing surroundings, could be an attractive option, said experts, From the security perspective, there are also suitable sites on the island which are secluded and private, said Mr Cole. But hotels on Sentosa may not be able to host large entourages, said the hospitality consultant. And that concludes your newsflash for today. Thank you for listening.